Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. Oh, here we are again. It's kind of cloudy again. I think that's going to be our weekend pattern, right? We get nice sunny weeks when we have to work and then the weekend comes and it starts clouding up again. What fun. So the season has officially arrived here on the east end of Long Island. And today we're going to talk about some blue bloods in a way. But first, I'm going to introduce everybody who's here. So manning our controls is Bill Sutton. Hi, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And I'm Annette Hankel, and I'm the arts and living editor of of the Express News Group. And also joining us are two other people from our staff. Um, First of all is Dana Shaw, our photographer. Say hello, Dana. Hey, um, I'm Dana Shaw. I'm the photo editor of the Express News Group. And we also have reporter extraordinaire Kitty Merrill. Um, And Kitty's with us as well. Hiya, Kitty. Hey, how are you? I am Kitty Merrill, as you just said. And I, I am indeed a reporter extraordinaire. That's awesome. Yes, you are. And as I said, we are going to talk about blue bloods and not the typical blue bloods on the east end of Long Island, but the horseshoe crabs that frequent the beaches around here. And they do indeed have blue blood. And right now is the time for horseshoe crab watching. If you're into watching horseshoe crabs, you can go out at night, preferably under a full moon, because this is the time in which they're mating out on the beaches. So um, it's kind of a cool event if you catch it and you see big groups of horseshoe crabs coming into the shallows, bays and things like that to couple up as it were and lay their eggs and then go off about their business. So this week, um, Kitty wrote a really, really interesting story about the horseshoe crabs um, and their plight. They're actually, um, there used to be millions and millions of them and now they're sort of having a little bit of trouble. Um, and um, which is kind of sad because according to what I've read they've been around for about 450 million years. Yes, they, they predate the dinosaurs. Really? They do, yeah, they do predate the dinosaurs. And Dana Shaw got out and took some really cool photos of the horseshoe crabs coming in to, um, to do their thing this year. So Kitty, I wondered if you wanted to start and talk a little bit about the story and sort of what you learned about horseshoe crabs and the, the reason that we need to be concerned about the, their decimating, decimation and what is actually contributing to their downfall. Well, before I do that, I do want to give a a very huge shout out and plug to our award-winning Dana Shaw. You have got to go and look online on 27 East to see the absolutely extraordinary pictures that she took of the event. So what happens is the American horseshoe crab has a range that goes from the Gulf of Mexico to Maine. And every year when the timing is right, the temperatures and the tides, they want to come into the shallows to mate. All the way back to the, in the 1800s, horseshoe crabs would be harvested. They were used as fertilizer. And then subsequently they were used as bait for catching eels and for catching whelk, which around here people also call conch. They put them in like the bait boxes that they drop down or like lobster traps they look like to catch the um, conch, AKA whelk. But what happened is they have discovered, I feel like maybe it was in the 80s, but they discovered that the, um, the blood of a horseshoe crab has this incredible coagulating effect huh. 
that will show whether there the presence of bacteria. As years go by, come to find out that that extremely unique blood is what's used to test, you name it, anything from breast implants to artificial knees and hips to uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. And I think it goes in like every IV bag too. I think before any IV bag is plugged into somebody, they drop a little bit in there. And if it gets cloudy, that means that there's a bacteria present. Exactly, exactly. If, if they drop it in and nothing happens, it's good. And if they drop it in and something happens, it, 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 there's bacteria. They also use it in like third world countries to detect you know, the quality of the water if the water is potable. So, so what's going on now is they got over harvested for two different reasons, you know, harvested to use as bait, but harvested big time to be drained for their blood and sent to bleeding facilities. So supposedly, Day and I are back and forth on this as to whether or not how, whether they survive after they get bled. Supposedly there's a 15% mortality rate, but the lady that I spoke to, who the horseshoe crab lady of West Hampton, she basically said that, that what she had heard was that the smell around those horseshoe crab bleeding facilities is very similar to the smell of dying horseshoe crabs. So what's going on is, and right here on Long Island, they are going to start doing trials. This biomedical company down south has started to work to create um, synthetic baits. And they look like these white hockey pucks. And they have the same smell that would attract the whelk or attract the eel to them. So they're going to do trials of that this summer. So do we know how close that where the nearest bleeding facility is? They're in North Carolina and Delaware, and then up north a little bit too. I think on like Woods Hole or around like maybe the Cape or something, they do them there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Dana, what was it like for you to get out there and, and take some photographs? And what did you learn about horseshoe crabs on this particular assignment? Well, I mean, I've always kind of been a fan, if you can be a fan of a horseshoe crab for a long time. Um, first time I ever saw one. My family and I used to go to Atlantic City on vacation. This was back when Atlantic City was like piers and way back. And I saw one on the beach and I was just completely dumbfounded by this thing. Didn't know what it was. It looked scary. Seemed harmless, but um, just fascinated by them. So I went out, they were actually tagging them uh, to estimate the the population, how many are out, how many are around. So just to clarify, this was where did you guys go to do the uh, to do this? Pike's Beach in West Hampton? West Hampton Dunes. West Hampton Dunes. It's the most fruitful area on Long Island for uh, tagging. They always get the largest numbers, even though it, it occurs a whole bunch of places on Long Island. But for whatever reason, Pike's Beach is a is a preferred lover's lane. And what's the, what's the purpose of tagging them? There was a bunch of people out there, right? Right, and it's, a, it's basically a count. Just to see if the numbers are declining? Mm-hmm. Did you get out there, Dana, and grab some? Well, actually, I, I kind of left the grabbing to the people who were tagging them, but the, the, the really interesting thing was I, I got there before anybody else got there, and the sun was just starting to go down. And it is just amazing to see. I, I mean, something that has been going on for literally, what, millions of years? Yeah. Uh, and it's just it's just something that happens, like sun rising, sun setting, and it's all based on tides. It's just, there's just something so perfect about it. I mean, um, you have these animals who've been doing the same thing for, for 
for millions of years and they know what to do instinctually and they don't even think about it. And just to see that happening, it's kind of amazing to me just to observe that and be there. And like I said, I was there by myself. There was nobody else there. And it was just kind of, uh, kind of amazing to see that happening. And so they tend to go back to the same places that they have been before and I'm, and they can live like, I guess, up to like 20 years, right? So these might be the same crabs that have been coming back for a while. What I thought, and to the point that Dana was making, Mark Capapiello, who's the husband of the horseshoe crab lady, whose name is Gina, but um, they've been doing, so they've been doing it there for, they've been participating in this, in this count for 15 years. But one of the things that he said, and he was like very awestruck when he was talking about it, we were standing on the shore and I went a different night than Dana did. So uh, depending on when the moon comes up is depending on the time that they're going to come in. So we're all standing there and waiting, you know, kind of just like waiting. And he's looking out over the water and he said, you know what? They wouldn't come if there was, if it was too windy, they won't come. They, they know if it's too, the, depending on what the, what the uh, conditions are, because if it's too windy, they might get rolled over in a wave and then they can't flip themselves back. And he was just awestruck of like, as Dana is saying that they just know. They just know to come, when to come. So did they happen to find any that they had tagged previously? I'm wondering if that is ever, you know. There were a few with tags on that I did. Yeah. So what, what's the tagging process? You were so descriptive in your story, Kitty. I thought it was really nice to, to, to go through that. It works the best if they have um, a team, if you have a team. So you have a person who is, you have runners who go into the water and get the, get the, um, get the crabs and bring them up to the rest of the team that's on a uh, drop cloth. And so one person will start with these big, big uh, calipers, I guess they are, or Dana, did those look like calipers? These big, it's something that they use to measure, to measure them. And so the one person is measuring and checking to see its, its sex, its gender while they're reading those off to somebody else who's a recorder. And then the third person is the one who has a drill. And you take the drill and you put it to the side. There's a side of their shell, which is their shell is a, a, a resin. And it goes right through. It's very similar that they described, the way Gina described the shell is similar to our fingernails. And so the, the, you put the drill, they, they drill through and then they just pop the, they just pop the um, tag into it. But I would, the surprising thing to me was when you see, you know, like if you've, I've been in the water with horseshoe crabs my, my whole life and, you know, they just seem to like glide along and they're like, as if they are in slow motion, they are not slow on land when they get up on land and you want it, you're trying to, it was, it was cute to watch. It was very, there were Keystone Cops moments where the, the crabs were escaping while the woman, one person was trying to measure them and another person was a little nervous about it. And she was like, watch out for the tail. <laughs> but the tail does nothing. It's just for uh, movement purposes. It has no stinger or anything. So it's, uh, cause I know that the horseshoe crabs molt. So when they molt, that doesn't, they don't leave the tag behind. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. We didn't talk about that with the, with the experts. I didn't read anything about it other than I know that they'll molt a number of times over the course of their lifetime, but they don't, they molt. Hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to take a guess because they, they molt before maturity. 
but they, even when they're little, like I've found tiny little molts on the beach that I've brought home right. are really cool. Like they're little mini horseshoe crabs. So they definitely do it quite a bit. I just wonder if the, uh, the tag is. No, you know what? I, I, I don't think, I don't think that would be an issue because I believe, and then I could be wrong, but I thought I read that they, they molt prior to their maturity, you know, mating age. Oh, I see. They don't, they don't molt once they're adults is what you're saying. I don't think so. I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm very, I didn't get deeply into it. And it's only the adults getting tagged, obviously. So Dana, did you have fun out there doing this? I really did. This is the kind of stuff I really enjoy. And um, it just fascinates me that, you know, nature is fascinating to me. The fact that you can have something like this that is so, that has been alive for millions and millions of years and is pretty much, it's pretty much perfection. Um, you know, it hasn't had any reason to evolve because it's perfect as it is. Dana, say what happened the next day because you went you went the next morning to look at the beach. I did, I did. There were- um... In the light because we're there in darkness usually. With... Did it look like there had been a toga party there the night before? Because I mean, you've got all these crabs <laughs> mating on, on the beach. A lot of, there were some crabs that, you know, must have gotten beached because I, I had actually turned a few over and there were a couple alive still that I put back in the water that got up above the tide line and couldn't get turned over. There was one, one with an incredibly little tail. I don't know whether it was, it got broken off or if it, if it just had like a, a misshapen tail that wasn't long enough, but it was on its back and it was rolling around and couldn't flip itself over because it didn't have its long spiky tail. So I, you know, went over and picked him up and he started moving and I'm like, okay, well, we're going to put Stubby back in the, in the bay. <laughs> so we did and uh yeah there were a couple more it it, it, it kind of did look like there was some kind of bacchanalia the night before but then you also <laughs> but talk about the eggs right well yeah i was gonna say instead of like beer cans there were horseshoe crab eggs <laughs> you know you could you could see them you could see them there they look like um the eggs were a little bit smaller than coriander seeds and they're kind of like that shape and consistency and they're a, a light greenish color to to like a, a, a yellowish color. So there there's a variance. They're very pretty, and you can see them. I mean, there's just they're just everywhere along the shorelines. They usually bury them, but I think sometimes when the tide goes out, you can see them. But there were a lot of shorebirds um, that were you know feasting that day. So. I actually saw a piping plover, and I'm not even sure if if the uh, if you if you look in the paper, you can see the pipe the bonus piping plover photo. I don't know if plovers eat their eggs, but it was around. That is one of the things that they're they're talking about. Um, Delaware Bay actually has is like the uh, the main the biggest draw of an area where where the where the horseshoe crabs go to mate. And one of the things that's uh, a concern is that if 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 they're overfished, if they, if they're, the more rare they become, or the more they, you know, the species is is imperiled, 
it, it has a, a domino effect on several species of birds who fly along what they call the Atlantic flyway in a migration pattern from the south straight up and they stop at Delaware Bay or they stop by our bays and just like gorge themselves on the way to their Arctic nest nesting grounds. So if those, if the eggs are not there, they go the birds too, you know? Big ones in Delaware, the big birds in Delaware, that, that, that's the, the one that really feasts on the horseshoe crabs in Delaware. I mean, I, I think they're here. I, I've never seen them. I've never seen them but that could just be me not seeing them. Um, uh, but, you know, I think they are around, but like they are in Delaware. Interesting. You know, they're, they're just, yeah. they just flock there, literally. And they're doing, and, and, and they're, they're looking to put uh, moratoriums on, on catching them there. We have moratoriums for the last two years uh, of catching them during the end of, so the last week of May and the first week of June is when their main mating season is. It can all, it, it can move depending on the moon, the moon and the climate, but pretty much right around that, those times. But I feel like there's a push in, um, I guess we're in, uh, near Delaware Bay to like completely. I think the Chesapeake Bay too. I mean, they should, it sounds like they've really used them for bait down there to a point where it's really decimated the numbers. I wonder how do we know how far they travel? Like the ones that you guys saw um, at Pikes Beach, you know, how far south do those guys go in the winter? Do they, you know, I just wondered. I, how, I don't know. They're. I don't know how far they go, but I know they exist from the Gulf of Mexico to Maine. Yeah, they're found wondering. in the, that whole area. If they travel very far, like the ones that we get here, is there any chance that they're wintering down in Virginia or anything like that? Oh, I don't know. So there's a lot we have to figure out. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com So um, we talked with Chris Gobler last week about a lot of things to do with water quality. Now, Chris is a professor in the School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences at Stony Brook University. I asked him about the population. So this is what well, he I said. Mean, I think it's a little variable. Uh, and, you know, that is that how each population is doing is, is different. Um, but I think, you know, there is harvesting pressure, which is of concern because, uh, I know they, the populations are on the ropes in some locations and there's, you know, they, they get used for um, medical research purposes, which is obviously very important. Um, they get used for bait, which to me, if their populations are in trouble and there's a higher purpose like medical research and there's other types of bait, to me, that is, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't want to uh, cast anyone who's doing the wrong thing, but um, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag with re, depending, depending on exactly where you are, but there's certainly concern. Uh, and I think, and, you know, but the, the, the upside is there is regulation. I just think in, in some cases it should be even a little bit more strict, given that there's other options. It's, you know, I've never, uh, it's not like the horseshoe crabs are the, the best bait you can get. 
how did the um the crew that you guys were with say the numbers seemed like had the had they just seen a really precipitous drop mark has been tagging for 15 years he said he's definitely seen a decrease in population and i also spoke to one of the local baymen who has been fishing he's 60 years old so he's lived on the bay Edwarder junior i think Yes, and he has been, uh, you know, aware of them and fishing and fishing for for horseshoe crabs. His son uh, currently fishes for conch, and he said it's a, it's a huge decline over the course of his life that he's seen. But I mean, even even if you're a person, you know, like even if you're just, I mean, I grew up on Long Island, so I, you know, I know what I've seen just up on the beaches myself, and you just, you know, extraordinarily rare to see them where it used to be something that was just a matter of course all the time. You know? And Ed, Ed Warner said that he's very much in, in favor of trying out the artificial bait, right? I mean, they're, they're saying mm -hmm. this is one of the things that's gonna help the population is the, the fishermen and baymen, instead of using um, you know, the horseshoe crab as bait for, for these conch and eels, would, would use this, this newly developed artificial bait in, the, in their pots or whatever. And he's somebody who's been who's been doing this for generations. And I, I know his father, uh, Ed Warner Sr. Did, did as well, but he told you that he's, he's really in favor of trying out this new market, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, because they want, they want a sustainable fishery. Sure. You know, they want, it to, they want it to stay there. They want it to continue. And what's interesting too, that one of the latest things that we didn't, we didn't get to explore because it's not 100% ready for prime time, but the um, biomedical facility, the doctor down south where they created these white hockey puck looking beets, the guy said that they've been studying and they started studying more and more and more about horseshoe crabs. They learned about what's going on with the blood and they're like now trying to explore a way to create that synthetically, to, to replicate it. I read a number of studies about that, but it was just getting to be, it was a lot. It was well, very technical. You probably have a lot of these facilities that don't want to give up their business. That'll be probably, because I think that the fishermen get paid to bring them in to bleed too. Um, oh, sure. So that's going to be, that will be kind of an interesting dynamic if they do outlaw or try to cut back on these facilities. And you have a lot of people that are probably going to be complaining about a lost way of life and bleeding the horseshoe crabs, right? It's a big industry. I mean, it's a money-making industry. I, Kitty, how much a pint for the blood? I didn't get a, I didn't get a clear axe. There, there was like all kinds of different rumors about that. I didn't get a, a, a clear answer on that at all. Hmm. So do we know, is global warming playing into the issue at all? Water temperatures going up here, I wouldn't think it would matter that that much because these guys live down, you know, in the Chesapeake and further south all the way to the Gulf. So I wouldn't think that they're as sensitive to the, the rise in water temperature, at least not around here, but I'm wondering if that's something that might decimate maybe some of the warmer places. Well, it could it possibly be getting too warm down in the Gulf for these guys and gals? Mm -hmm. Well, you have to feel that that's, you got to feel that that's happening for most species that are, you know, that have a temperature dependent life cycle. And migrations, I mean, could interfere with their migration pattern. Like you said, they've, they've been doing the same migration for millions of years. Once you start to interrupt that, who knows what happens. I just, I just wanted to, you know, pull something else out of, out of Kitty's story that I thought was a, a great quote. And it came from Lee Robertson, who's a director of scientific communications and operations for Kepley, which is, which is the, uh, the company making this 
artificial bait. And, and he, um, in, in describing how it works, he says, you know how humans walk by a coffee shop, get a whiff of delicious roasted bean aroma, and they just have to have one. It's much the same for crabs and lobsters, he said, except with something much stinkier. I just thought that was a great <laughs> quote. I wanted to share that. So then what they do is they make, they replicate that smell. And what they did, they started off with lobsters. Lobsters is what they were first making the uh, baits, the synthetic oh. baits for, were for catching lobsters. And now it's the synthetic baits for conch and eels to replace the horseshoe crabs. And what may, what's good about the synthetic baits is that when you, uh, if you're catching a horseshoe crab, you can only go at a certain time. Obviously, that's when they're going to be around, number one. And then you have to have them in, you can only keep them for a certain length of time because they have to be in refrigerated and they have to be transported a certain way. And they're, you know, they're one kind of a size. They're significant as opposed to these hockey pucks that you can, that don't need this, that are easy to store, easy to transport, last, have like a longer shelf life than fresh fish, fresh seafood. And so there was like, uh, there are other benefits to come once they trial these and, and see if it works. And of course, you also have the problem of, you know, uh, countries around the world are probably taking a lot of horseshoe crabs. So even if we get better here about it, you know, in other parts like in Asia, are they going to change their methods? Well, see, now see, there's a kind of a thing, the thing in Asia is, and they have the other species, we have the American horseshoe crab. And then there's three other species that are in Asia. And what's interesting there, and you know, some would argue that it's like a little bit more of a humane uh, harvesting manner is that they do catch them and they catch them for bleeding. But what they do after that, the ones that are caught are eaten. So, you know, people eat it. So it's a, it's a food source. Huh. So, um, yeah, they don't, they don't, uh, they make no pretense of putting them back in the water. Well, I can't imagine there's a lot of meat on those guys. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where the meat would even be. Those little skinny legs. Yeah, <laughs> they're related to spiders, right? Is that what we learned? That's correct. More, they're more in the spider family than they are in the crab family. But isn't, well, aren't all crab spiders? I think so, yeah. I don't know. Why you got to ask me questions <laughs> I don't have answers to? I wrote, I wrote 25 million <laughs> words on this thing. The three words, the three things I don't know, she's asking me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good because that's just, you know, now we know, now we know yeah. what we want to know. I, I thought the, the whole mating process was was fascinating that you would, you might have a pair mating, but then two other guys might come along and join the party and join the party. And then you've got, you've got these groups of four or more crabs in this whole one female and a, and a bunch of guys. It's a crab orgy. <laughs> Definitely. Dana understood it better than I did. I actually thought, well, I'm a, I, what I thought was a little too graphic for, for, for a G-rated talk show, but Dana, you explain how it works. Well, it, it, it's cool. What, what happens is when the time is right and the, uh, the moon is bright, you know, just like any other romantic kind of- when, when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, it's amore. <laughs> No, that's an eel. No, <laughs> it is. That's a whole different podcast. That's right. <laughs> so one thing, the females are probably twice the size of the male horse crabs. And what happens is the female goes toward the shoreline, which is 
you know, you, you can see in the, 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 uh, the darkening light, you can see them coming forward into the shallow waters and you will see a male has a specially shaped claw. It's shaped like almost like a baseball mitt that clamps onto the female shell and she essentially drags him around. And what happens is she finds a place, releases her eggs, drags the male over them to fertilize them. And that's what happens. But in the interim, they pick up hitchhikers. So, you know, you've got one, one female crab, one male crab, and then you've got other males coming along, grabbing onto the shell, trying to get into the hole to get dragged over the eggs as well um, so they can fertilize them. So it's basically just kind of like a, a, a race and you will see these large female horseshoe crabs carrying, you know, sometimes three, four male crabs. It, it looks like a lot of work, actually. <laughs> and they will release, they'll release in each mating season up to 100,000 eggs, one female. So she needs a lot of guys. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's pretty interesting, and and you know apparently pheromones are released, and this is you know there's a whole thing, wow. and and uh, you know it's exhausting being a woman. <laughs> Bill's silence. Well, I'm just thinking about the competition of those three other those three other male crabs. <laughs> there's enough of me to go around. I mean, her to go around. <laughs> so what do they eat? Do we know what they eat? Oh no, I actually do not. Huh. That's a really good question. I don't know that. And you know what? I read, I've, I've got to have read dozens of horseshoe crab facts over the course of, of research for this. And I honest, honestly never saw anything about it. It's all the biggest focus is on their, you know, vulnerability to extinction, uh, that they are not dangerous because that's, that's a big uh, concern. People think they're like uh, that. Their tail is going to sting them. So I just I just looked it up while while we were talking about it. They feed on small clams, crustaceans, and worms. And worms. However, they will also eat other animals and even mm. algae. And because they have no mandibles or teeth, they crush hard food between their legs before passing it to their mm. mouth. I do that sometimes. <laughs> well, with walnuts and stuff, right? Yeah, like <laughs> They have a whole lot of eyes, though. How many eyes total? Ten. Ten eyes. Wow. Top of their shells, on the sides, and I'm not sure where else. I'd have to look it up. They literally have eyes in the back of their head. See, they are women. They're mothers. They're definitely <laughs> mothers. Keep a track of those three guys chasing them around. The beach. <laughs> and all those thousands of kids they've left on the beach. <laughs> right. And now, and now, Dana, didn't you think that they were so much heavier than, weren't they so much heavier than you expected them to be? They're substantial. They're like little, little sea tanks. Mm -hmm. They like trundle up in the water, trundle, 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 go up to the shore. And they're just, they're just so filled with purpose. I just like that. That makes me happy to see them. So go out and kiss a crab. Yeah. <laughs> My advice. Get in line, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. 
SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.